Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and today I have a very special guest and my very special guest is the writer Mira Atkinson. So Mira's um, creative non-fiction, poetry and short fiction have appeared in many publications including Best Australian Poems, Best Australian Stories, Salon, Mianjin and the Griffith Review. She was the recipient of the Varuna Dr. Eric Dark Flagship Fellowship for 2017, awarded for a non-fiction application of outstanding quality in social, historical, or political writing. She also won the Griffith Review Contributor Circle Competition in 2016 and the Griffith Review Emerging Writers Prize in 2011. And she was shortlisted for the Alfred Deakin Prize for an essay advancing public debate in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards 2007. She's joined us here today to talk about her new book, which has just come out, um, a few months ago or a month ago, um, called Traumata. So thank you for joining me, Mira. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering, um, to, to start this off, um, I was wondering if you could outline what Traumata is about for listeners who don't know the book. It's quite a new title. So if you could just sort of orient us what's going on in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's about, fundamentally, it's about... Um, the trauma of patriarchy. It's um, a book that explores the ways in which um, patriarchy sort of structurally traumatizes us all to various degrees and in in different ways. Um, so the way I approach doing that is through telling my own story um, of kind of multiple uh, traumatizations um, over a kind of period of of a time, specifically childhood through adolescence up to kind of early adulthood, um, mid, mid-20s. Um, and, but it's kind of weaves in and out of that memoir, that uh, life story and um, kind of multidisciplinary <laughs> explorations mm-hmm. of, of, um, of trauma, of society, of, uh, you know, cultural operations. Brilliant. Um, uh, to get, give readers, a, a listeners, a sense, sorry, of, of the of the novel or the the memoir. Sorry. Um, would you mind reading, say, the first page or so for us? Sure. Um, I will just say that preceding the first page, there is a um, a little section at the beginning that um, gives a bit of a definition of traumata. So yeah, it is essentially yeah. the the plural of trauma. Mm. It's a word that isn't commonly used, but it is a proper word. I didn't make it up, and yeah, I'd never heard of it it's before. Often seen I got in the yeah, it's often it, it shows up more in the clinical psychology yeah. literature. Mm. Um, okay, so this is the beginning of the book. I wake up tense, nervous system switching on to the wild winds that have rattled the windows all night, making it hard to settle, trapping me in that thin top layer of sleep on which insistent thoughts intrude. I scan the room, rise and open the curtains. The branches of enormous eucalyptus trees dance out of time against the bruised gray sky. The sun breaking through sparks off leaves. The power goes down. Do I start with my mother's fear, my father's certainty, or with the blackout rape I rarely think about? that took place in a cheap Bondi hotel when I was a teenage alcoholic. I still see the judgmental brow and hear the tone of the cop. You know the one, sneery, patronising, shaming, tasked with investigating after the police picked me up. 
They're cruising down Campbell Parade in the early hours of a Sunday in 1981. And there on the side of the road stands a young woman holding the flattened side of a cardboard box against her naked body, having snatched it up while running through a fluoro-lit car park. Is it even necessary to tell that story? Haven't we heard enough? It occurs to me now, I don't recall this rape ever coming up in therapy. It had some competition. The poet Eileen Miles says that writers spend so much time processing, consuming and creating an alternative self that is entirely composed of language so that there are precise speeds or toxins or organs in it that work in concert with the state that you are in and can only neutralise your own pain by vanishing into a song composed exactly of that timber, unquote. I think she means there is a place we go for the magic of disappearing and arriving simultaneously, some kind of dissolving communion. I was lonely then, or maybe I should say I was lonely then in a way I'm not lonely now. That's how I came to be at a bar on my own, aged 18, letting some guy buy me drinks till I was drunk enough to go back to a hotel with him and his friends. This is not a confession or a hard luck yarn, though there is some hard luck in it. This is not about me or only me, my meanness. There's a reason I'm telling you this. I understand you want to know what kind of book this will be and whether you can count on me. I'm thinking about how to respond. I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That's a, it's a great opening um, piece because I think it really sets up what the book does in that there's that, that lovely mix of memoir and um, a cultural kind of analysis or a cultural um, reckoning, I think, as well. So mm. I, wanted to, I wanted to know, um, you know, there's such, it's such difficult um, material that you're talking about, such kind of complex material, and we'll talk about the kind of resonances with the Me Too movement um, a little bit later. But I was yeah. wondering what inspired you to write this book because it seems to me such um, painful territory to go over, and, and I was wondering where it came from for you. Um, well, I'd actually been working in this, in this terrain, sort of broadly speaking, for, for some time. I started writing memoir for Griffith, Griffith Review back in um, 2004 was the first piece I published with them. Um, and, and, that was, and, and it was sort of a hybrid approach back then, although less so. This, is, this, became, this particular work became kind of wildly hybrid. Mm. Um, and it, it, I guess it was just an instinctive thing that that's how I wanted to work with this kind of material and... Uh, you know, to varying degrees, some of the memoir pieces I published with Griffith Review over the years were more hybrid than others. Um, and, but, and some some weren't really, you know, there was one I can think of that wasn't particularly hybrid. Um, mm. But I guess the incentive for, for pulling all that together and then developing upon it into, uh, toward a book was the realisation a that I'm that I love working in hybrid um, territory, and I had never done it in book form. Mm -hmm. um, B that I just look around and I see so so over the years, like the different 
the thing that happened in between the first memoir piece that I published with Biffa Review and the publication of this book was I went off and did a PhD mm. um, in 2010 on the looking at the, the transgenerational transmission of trauma and the literary testimony to those transmissions. And so that was a whole other level of, of um, examining this, this territory. And when I merged out the other side, I realised that there was a space to, to pull all that together in a way that says something, that you know, uses my life, but says something very much more than just um, uh, uh, discussing my experiences in my life. Something I think is pretty important, which is, look, let's not, let's not just imagine that these things that happen to us individually, that are so endemic, happen to so many people, particularly women, particularly girls. Um, let's not imagine that these things are anomalies. Let's not imagine, let's not, of course, they're having an individual impact and there's no way around that. It's not to, um, I don't mean in any way to um, deflect from, from that, but unless we start to really reckon with the structural setup, the way that we are structurally set up um, to be traumatised, unless that starts to be really understood and really um, addressed, this cycle is just going to keep going. Yeah, and I think that's what your book so brilliantly plays out because, you know, there's that old axiom that it's, it's, it's through the um, specific that we get to the general. And, and that really struck me upon reading um, your book that it was a grounded in this specific story about you and, yeah. your, and your trauma, but it was pointing to, as you say, whole systems of, of privilege and power that, that perpetuate these cycles so that it, it never changes. It just continues to be perpetuated and perpetuated. And we've seen it's, that so, yeah. so sharply in the news in the, in the past, um, certainly with the, the Me Too movement more broadly, um, but certainly even with the, the murder that occurred. Well, two murders this week of two young murders, women, yeah. um, a murder of a young child. Um, yeah. by father the week before I mean you know this stuff is just it's just constant mm. and um and everybody knows it is and and yet we're you know we, we've seen it again with with um the murder of uh University Dixon is that the, mm -hmm. the way in which this is discussed at the media level the way in which you know people are you know just kind of the knee-jerk framings that happen um, yeah. because we've all been so trained and conditioned to in, in many ways, minimise the impact of patriarchy, minimise the, um, the the crimes it leads to. And I think, uh, you know, as you say, that that's very much the methodology of the book, that, that the personal, that through the personal, we can actually understand better the collective and what we need very, very clearly. Um, you know, we see it every day in our feeds, every day on the news. What we need very, very clearly is some kind of, deep, comprehensive understanding of what the hell's going on, on mm. a, at a collective level, um, because we're in crisis. And we've been in crisis a long time, but it seems to be ramping up. Um, and, uh, you know, and we even look at things like climate change, and that's connected. You know, that's not mm. operating outside of patriarchy either. So, um, so I, you know, that, that's, that's the motivation for the book, really, is, is that, you know, I didn't feel a burning need to tell my story. Some people 
have said, oh, it must be cathartic or, you know, do you feel better now for having... Mm. No, I, no I, I feel better now for having spent decades in therapy and as a human being trying <laughs> to address this stuff. You know, I, I feel better now for having, you know, uh, done some stuff over the years toward, um, you know, understanding and, and, and working with, with um, these experiences. But... Um, the motivator for me in writing the book was was essentially a political one. In the first um, interview I did with Books and Publishing, before the book came out, I referred to it as um, as literary direct action, and that is that's how how it felt to me. Was it was a way of, of sort of trying to intervene on this um, this cultural reality um, through literature. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful notion. I really like that idea of um, literature as a form of direct activism. Um, so you touch on on the Me Too movement in the book, and I get the sense that, that was happening as you were writing or wrapping up the writing. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to um, reflect on that, because I, I'm not sure um, how you feel about, about all of this sort of stuff, whether you feel that this is a, a real a kind of change, um, that there is a kind of hope um, in, embedded in that Me Too movement, or is this, um, you know, just something that will be swept under the carpet again? That it'll have its mm. moments, and everyone will move on, and, and mm. change will actually happen. Yeah. Um, well, look. First of all, no, it wasn't. I wasn't um, writing at the time of Me Too. I'd already written this book. It was yeah. sort of in very, very final proofing mm. stages. Um, when all that happened. Yeah. Um, but when it did happen and when it became obvious that it wasn't just going to be another, you know, 48-hour sort of viral moment, um, that it was more substantial and significant than that and becoming mm. something of a movement, um, I, I worked a bit, you know, I went back and worked a bit in about it um, yeah. because it just felt like, oh, God, there's just so many resonances between yeah. what I've done in the book and what's happening here with this, um, with this moment. Um, so I, I felt that it would be a shame to not acknowledge it. Um, but because it was so late in the stage of mm. the publication process, I couldn't, I couldn't really address it substantially. Mm -hmm. um, but as to your question about what I make of it, you know, whether I think it's a real um, game changer, well, oh, boy, I mean, that's, this is such complex stuff, isn't it? Yeah. And mm -hmm. ultimately, I, I don't know. I, I think it's very significant. As I say in the book, you know, my first instinct, I guess, you know, I've been around a while and it's a bit hard to impress me. It's a bit hard, you know, like I, I desperately, you know, I'm one of those people, I guess, you know, what are they, what do we call kind of like a disillusioned romantic? I, I desperately yeah. want to believe that radical change is possible, that a better world is possible, that, that we can find some way to, um, to stop these uh, horrendous cycles of unnecessary suffering. I mean, there's always going to be a degree of unavoidable suffering in life. That's part of the deal of life on life's terms. But there's so much unnecessary suffering, so much, mm. um, you know, wanton destruction. And um, so, of course, I want to believe there's a way out of those cycles and that there's, there's things we can do that matter. And I know that there are. Mm. At a personal level, I know that there are. I wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, but on the other hand, I also know how 
deeply entrenched this stuff is, I know how much resistance there is to really profound change on, on, from, on so many fronts and so many levels. Um, and uh, so I do, I do, I guess, come at something like, you know, that viral moment with a degree of scepticism. And as I, as I say in the book, I didn't, you know, embrace it wholeheartedly initially because I was mm. a bit kind of like, ah, yeah, well, look, it's, that's really nice and great if it makes us feel more solidarity, you know. Um, great if it works for the worldwide community of women and people, you know, who have, have been abused um, in those ways to find solace and, and power through supporting each other. But I doubted how much it would really you know, make a difference in terms of how workplaces actually function, how culture functions. But, you know, that said, as it's gone on, I think that, you know, I think it's turned into being more of a reckoning. There is a sense now that there's a turn, a corner's been turned and obviously it's not going to be, you know, the, the neat conclusion of those behaviours. But I think... There is a, a corner's been turned, and we're having conversations now about consent, that um, about uh, harassment in the workplace. You know, things. I think it's going to be harder. It's going to be harder for people to get away with that. And that's look. That's not even almost enough. It's not even almost enough on the mm. on the order of what change is needed. But it's better than nothing. And I think you know that's that's definitely at least. Um, a pretty observable mm. um, effect so far. Yeah, it's sort of complicated in the Australian context because um, we have such um, strict defamation laws and that seems to have stymied the, the stories in Australia really coming forward. I was listening to Tracy Spicer talk about this and um, how much reluctance there is on um, the part of Australian media to, to really go there in, in publicising these stories because... Um, there's it's just so much danger of litigation um, that there isn't necessarily in the US um, system where a lot of these, you know, the original kind of Weinstein stories were coming from. Yeah, yeah, true. But I think, you know, some of it, some of this stuff is just really an open secret, you know, like yeah, recently, right. you know, exactly. that, yeah, there've been co coverage in the Australian and uh, other publications recently of the, um, you know, the, of the story that's come out of new works um, from Kate Lilly and her sister. Yeah, Rosario. that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, and that stuff is, you know, there, there have been, I've been watching those threads because I work with Kate at University of Sydney and, um, you know, of, of course there's so much resonance between, you know, her recent collection Tilt and Rosanna's book and, and Traumata. So, of mm. course, you know, we're, we're very interested in, in this moment together. But um, I've been watching the threads and, you know, of course there are the people coming in who, you know, were either friends of Dorothy Hewitt's or part of that circle or who, you know, just sort of, I don't know, still still want to advocate for the, you know, the kind of... Uh, the freedom of the times, the 70s, etc. Yeah, coming on and sort of somewhat defending or objecting, and, and I just think, oh, you know, the bottom is that they've really not got ground because a lot of this stuff is an open secret. I mean, mm. as, as people have been responding uh, on the threads, pointing out, Dorothy Hewitt herself wrote about all those things um, going on, and so they're they're there, they're there on record already, and so to to some degree, we can. I think we can, um, you know, have conversations about things that are already, um, you know, 
fairly known. But yes, it's, I don't know, you know, what's happening more broadly yeah. um, in the Me Too movement here. There are people speaking up, but mm -hmm. also maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a difference in style too. Um, yeah, I'm that's true. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I was interested in, um, you know, you were talking about that hybrid form of the book, which I think is is um, the thing that really grabs you about this book is is the hybridity. Um, I was wondering if there were any particular writers you were looking at, um, any um, literary influences that you had that when you were thinking about how to combine this really personal material and this more kind of um, psychological work, anthropological work, um, cultural analysis work, was mm, that mm. you were looking to? As a, as yeah. A yeah, there was. Um, look, I, as I say, I've been working in this kind of hybrid territory and it, it was really, you know, just instinctive for me to do that. Mm. for some time but but there was a book that I read just before I started working on Traumata Maggie uh, Nelson's The Argonauts mm, fantastic so, mm. yeah and and when I read that I recognized oh okay this is somebody who's you know like it's it's already it's, it's in the sort of terrain of hybrid that I've already been working with mm. but um she wasn't scared to bring in theory and I think like as in, you know, really quite conceptual stuff. And yeah. I don't think I'd done so much of that before in my hybrid work. I had been, you know, bringing in kind of, um, you know, various points of research or, or news stories or, you know, whatever was kind of resonating with what I was grappling with. But um, I think I might have been probably too scared to bring in theory as such for for fear of it being read then as an academic work. And I definitely wanted um, this book to be primarily a literary work. I didn't want it to, to come across as an academic work, even though, you know, it's it's got a kind of, um, I guess, a kind of, you know, rigorous research <laughs> aspect to it. Um, but that, I think that emboldened me um, to, to go, no, it's actually, that can work. You know, it can work. There is a way to, to bring in, those you know very kind of intellectual theory based grapplings mm -hmm. with the personal and for it still to remain you know very very much uh, a work of literature so yeah that was an important one yeah, well, for me, um, like coming from an academic background, I think this is really the nicest way to read theory because this is making it um, concrete. It's making it personal. It's making it, you know, you see the 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 links between the theory and the kind of um, academic discussion and and how and how that plays out or how that can illuminate the personal experience. So I thought that was a particularly lovely part of your book. Um, I was wondering too, as I was reading, you know. I was thinking about writing a memoir, about you writing this memoir and about the kind of difficult subject matter that you go over. And I was wondering what sort of issues arose for you as you were writing, mm. um, especially, as I said, the more personal aspects of the book. Did you mm. find any um, anything kind of um, particularly difficult to talk about, particularly difficult to write about? What sort of issues did you grapple with? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I definitely found, you know, that there's a lot mm. of it that... I mean, it's not, it wasn't the writing about it that I found difficult because there's nothing, you know, there was nothing in this book that was news to me. Um, yeah, no, yeah. It wasn't like I was having, you know, revelations or um, <laughs> as I was writing it. This is all stuff I've been 
discovering and I guess processing and, and sort of working with, working through for many years. Um, so it wasn't news to me and it wasn't difficult to write it. It was the, the thought of public you know, consumption, public kind of airing, of yeah. course, that's the hard, that's the challenging part, which is, I guess, what you mean by the challenge of writing it, mm. um, knowing that you're actually writing for an audience. And all I can say about that is that I think, you know, I think it takes a certain ruthlessness to be, to be this kind of writer, to be a writer that works with memoir. It's, it's, um, I was just really clear that if I, if I censored myself, it wasn't worth doing, you know, it, the mm. kind of book it had to be, I had to just go, I had to go where it needed me to go. And of course there were moments where that was deeply uncomfortable and still is, um, or where I was concerned about, you know, um, being stigmatized or, you know, even career opportunity, you know, stuff yeah. like that comes up. Um, but, but there's a level where I, I just dig in and I just, you know, I just go, okay, well, whatever, how, wherever the chips fall, um, I'm going with this because the work, it's what the work requires. And so yeah. as a writer, I think that's the bottom line. It's like, okay, I'm not in this for personal comfort. If the work requires it, I have to go there. And of course I try and take care of my relationships and and I did I had a kind of ethical process with that because my story is not just my story it's a shared story um, in many ways so I had to take care with that and I do think that's a responsibility that writers have I feel that keenly but yeah I I, I also I think I also work it by just in the first draft phase really kind of being in a bit of denial about that <laughs> future public. Yeah. It's just like I just get in there, me in the garret with the machine and the work, <laughs> and it's just like I create this little bubble where nothing exists really outside of that process, and it's a profoundly intimate space. Mm. Um, and it's like in that place, it's just I'm talking to the page, and, yes, I know, you know, there's a kind of conversational aspect to this book where I'm, very um, overtly communicating to a reader and acknowledging that there is a reader. Um, so it's not like I'm, I'm oblivious to that in the writing process, but it's like the reader in that moment is, is sort of figured in my mind in a very intimate, safe, <laughs> bubbly yeah. space, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that makes it possible, makes it possible to go there. It was, it was the before... The publication that the freak out really hit yeah. <laughs> so yeah I just deferred that <laughs> <laughs> yeah and by then it was already on you know on the page and printed and nothing you can do about it so yeah how did you manage that with um you were talking about like your ethical practice about where um other people's stories intersect with your own um I was thinking about that because I was just you know as I was reading it I was thinking god if I wrote a memoir I felt like I, I would feel like I'd have to change all the names or something, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, like, how did you manage that? Well, that is absolutely one strategy. Uh, I didn't change all the names. There were some, I mean, that was a weird one. I didn't change the names of my family, for example, because that just felt silly. It was like, look, you know, this is 
people know anyone who knows me and my yeah. family is going to know who these people are. Yeah. Um, so that felt kind of redundant. Um, so I didn't bother with that. Um, but I did, and I didn't change the name of all my friends, um, name checked, but, but any that, anywhere I was talking about, you know, stuff that has stigma or that, mm. um, you know, might have any kind of, you know, career impact for them if they, you know, if, if they were identified, um, anything like that, I changed names where I possibly could. Mm. And, um, but I also spoke to people. I obviously couldn't get around. There's quite a lot of people along the way, you know, a cast of thousands. I couldn't get around and ask everybody. I'm not even in contact with everybody that yeah. um, appears in the book one, one way or another. Um, but, you know, the key people, people that I really, um, you know, have ongoing relationships with or, or that figured really uh, in key ways in the book, I, I did contact those people and um, told them about it and invited them to read um, a proof, a final proof, and to, you know, have a conversation if there was anything that really, really bothered them, which which wasn't to say, you know, a promise to change anything because, like I say, I think, yeah. you know, writers are kind of ruthless people in the end, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, my kind of writer is. Um, but, but certainly I was open to having a conversation and, and considering requests. Um, yeah, but, but as it was, uh, nothing really, you know, nothing came of that. There was, yeah. you know, everybody was okay with it because I think once they read it, I think one or two people were pretty scared about about it ahead of the fact because they just weren't sure what I was doing. But once they read it and they understood the spirit in which those experiences are written by um, about and those people are written about, they they were supportive. Yeah, I was wondering um, about the reaction to the book um, and how you feel it's been received because it um, it really strikes me as a very, you know, this is obviously quite accidental, um, timely, mm. um, such a timely book. And I was and I was wanting to get at um, what sort of conversations you were having um, and, and what you've noted about the public reaction to the book. Mm -hmm. Well, it's only just starting to come through now, you know, reactions because... Yeah. It came out right at the very, very end of April. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it takes a while to sort of feel... Yeah. And because this is my first literary book, I've had academic books um, published before, but, you know, mainstream readers don't, don't generally know about those. So it's my first literary book and, and as such also... Um, it's been a little bit slower to get reviewed. So I've only just had a couple of mainstream reviews in the last um, week or so. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm just starting to get more word in now, and um, it's it's great. It seems to be getting a really good um, response. It seems to be being read. Um, I'm hoping you know word of mouth will will get around yeah. about it because um, you know there is so much competition for review space now. I'm, I'm really pleased to have had a couple, and and perhaps there's more to come. Um, but yeah, I think uh, um, it is timely, and I was really aware of that when I was writing it, and it's just become more so. It just seems yeah. like there's something sort of in, in play. There's, there's something going on where this stuff is just coming more and more to a head. And it's, it's um, you know, we're moving closer and closer, I think, to a point where the chips are really down. The chips are, are getting, you know, really, really down. We're going to have to make a decision. Do we actually start addressing the structural 
you know, the structural, historical reality here in this stuff and really commit, dig in and commit to, to dealing with that and turning that around? Or do we just continue on this, on this path to self-destruction, of self-destruction? Yeah, I was really interested in the the parts of your book where you talk about the sort of bodily experience of trauma and you talk about, you know, um, discussion of, of, say, the epigenetic legacies of trauma mm. and the ways in which trauma impacts upon the way you feel about your body. Um, because I think those are conversations that are, you know, increasingly being had as people start to, you know, realise the ubiquity of these mm. kinds of traumas. I was wondering if you might speak to that and um, the section... Mm where you talk about the way you feel about um, your body and your body image, I suppose, as a result of these traumas? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's so interesting to me because when I first started, you know, I, I started writing about trauma before undertaking the PhD in uh, 2010. But it's sort of, I'm, I'm a bit slow. It took me a while to realise <laughs> that I was writing about trauma. And... Well, I did. I went off and did a PhD in it, uh, created a PhD. And what's amazing to me is that when I first started the PhD in 2010, it was a really different landscape. It's not like, you know, trauma wasn't a thing. There was still trauma theory, trauma studies, you know, people doing, you know, writing literature about trauma. It was still, you know, people in therapy talking about trauma. That was happening. But there wasn't this sort of public conversation about it. It wasn't a word that you encountered in your, you know, social media feeds every day, the way it is now. And people are, something's happened in that eight years where there's so much more awareness and um, attention to trauma and transgenerational trauma than there was when I first started out, um, really focusing on this. And um, so, yeah, I you asked about the bodily experience. The body, yeah. Yeah. I think the thing about trauma, okay, so the definition of it, right, is that it's an experience or an event that's happened too fast or too violently or overwhelmingly for the nervous system to cope with and for the psyche to process in the normal kinds of ways that, that we process experience. And so what that actually involves is a kind of a subjective splitting Right? That means after you know, a, an extreme or a kind of chronic um, experience of trauma, there's this kind of rupture in the self at, at a very kind of deep level. And, and so when in the wake of that traumatic experience, one then is experiencing the self, there's, there's this sense of distortedness and that can express itself in a lot of different ways. Um, there's this really interesting literature around this in, in you know, clinical psychology um, territory that talks about how that, that can become, you know, just these kind of tape loops of really negative self-talk. It can become kind of obsessive, you know, bodily distortion, perceptions. It can become all kinds of different um, pathologies and, and neuroses um, and, and symptoms. And so... I address that in the book in, you know, in terms of how um, I experienced that as a young woman and, you know, the combination of having been kind of traumatised in, in various different ways, both through growing up amid violence, domestic violence, through kind of sexual abuse, assault, et cetera, and 
also, you know, living in a culture that conditions women to be um, very, very focused on physical beauty, um, to be very concerned with, um, you know, eradicating imperfections and how, for me, that just really all came together in a kind of perfect storm of, um, you know, horrible horrible obsession with mm. with looks and, um, you know, really shame-based sense of never being good enough and perfectionism. And I know I'm not alone in that. This is something no. that, you know, women, women and girls um, talk about and grapple with at a, you know, endemic levels, you know, to an endemic degree. So, you know, it's not, it's not um, an isolated no. uh, experience. It's a very common one. And, in fact, I would say that it's probably, you know, that there's, you know, there's a real bind there between the way you know women and girls are kind of so routinely traumatized and also um you know it's set up to to um require physical perfection of ourselves and um yeah it's a, it's a really horrible one yeah no i i don't think there's sort of a you know maybe this is is, is um a big statement but i just i i can't think of a woman that doesn't get involved or isn't implicated in these discourses of, of, of the body and, and the way in which female bodies are supposed to look and behave and the kind of labour that we put into maintaining these, you know, these standards of bodily perfection, I suppose. Um, and and that I thought that that was a very um, interesting part of your book about the intersection between um, the violence that has been done to the body and, and the way you feel about the body. Mm. Mm. And, and a horrible irony that the violence, so much violence, is done to the bodies of women and girls and, and then the expectation is that, is that those bodies just present as sort of, you know, perfect and, um, you know, desirable to the male gaze throughout their life. You know, it's just this horrible, horrible kind of um, paradox. And yeah, and you talk about the the dead girl, you know, the the body of the of the dead girl, and and how this is um, it's it's something that's fetishized still, mm. um, and we've seen that play out um certainly in um in recent weeks as well. Mm. This has been such a fantastic conversation, Mira. Thank you so much for talking to me about your book. I think it's um really a wonderful wonderful read, and um even though it's about such difficult topics, and I think it's such a timely book. So I really hope um that it gets the attention it deserves. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much, Mira, once again. Um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. Um, we'll have show notes available for this episode, so you'll be able to have a link to buy Mira's book um, as well as read more about her work. Um, so thank you, Mira, once again, and we'll see you again in a week. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye.